Uh, my ambitious goal is to finalize our discussion on God without passions or the doctrine of divine impassibility. We dealt with it last week. I want to try and finish it up this week so we can move on in the first paragraph that we've sought to tackle in our confession of faith. So um, I will um, uh, give you a little hope. There are some things coming up in this paragraph that we've already discussed, so we'll be able to move through those a little bit more. But um, as a reminder, we're dealing with that statement in chapter 2 and paragraph 1, that God is without body, parts, or passions. And we've uh, dealt with the first two. We're going to deal today with God without uh, passions. So for the sake of time, so we can run through it, I'm not going to read that paragraph uh, in its entirety tonight. Um, (coughs) But I do want to remind you of exactly what we... Uh, mean uh, when we say God without passions, and we will um, we'll pick up where we left off uh, last week. If you remember the um, the description I gave you is uh, is dealing with this word uh, passions, not in the sense that we generally use it in our language, uh, but if you think of um, what's referred to often as uh, the passion of Christ, um, it's not dealing with his uh, with an uh, in emotion, but it's rather dealing with his suffering. Um, or uh, another way it is often used and is appropriate in this sense is dealing with um, uh, mood or uh, emotion. So uh, we're going to properly define how those are used. We're going to look at the scriptures and when we see instances of that, uh, what we're saying. But um, in simple terms, what we are saying is that God does not suffer and is not prone to mood swings, is the, the way that we can uh, phrase that. But um, we're going to get uh, into more detail. And remember, if you remember from last week, I uh, went through a few of the objections to this doctrine, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to answer those uh, for us tonight. So... Um, I want to begin by talking about uh, what is referred to. Well, we often refer to anthro, uh, anthropomorphisms in the Bible, which are um, uh, human body parts generally are um, are given to God in description. So, if you have, uh, we talk about the hand of God or the eye of God or whatever it is. Those are called anthropomorphisms. They are human attributes attributed to God um, and given to us uh, so that we can simply have an understanding of what is being described. We've already covered, and we know clearly from the scriptures that God doesn't have a body, um, but those body parts are often attributed to him for our understanding. So what we are going to deal with is similar to that. It's called anthropopathisms, anthropopathisms. When the Bible ascribes human emotion to God, it's called an anthropopathism. Um, So when emotive language is employed in the Bible in reference to God, uh, the writers are using human language, just like we dealt with body parts. They're using human language to describe the divine. Now, the difference between anthropopathism and anthropomorphism um, is that while God does not have body parts, it is 
it seems clear in the scriptures that God does have emotions. But what we're saying here is that they are not human emotions and how they are invoked, invoked and how they are necessarily described. So uh, I'll give you an example. The biblical description of love in the Bible is found where? Where do we turn when we want to know what love is? Right, 1 Corinthians 13. Um, If you think back to our uh, discussion on uh, the simplicity of God, what do we understand about uh, the statement from 1 John that God is love? Well, we understand that all of these attributes that we see of what love is in 1 Corinthians 13 find their totality and their perfection in God. So um, when we talk about love, generally we're referring to what? Okay, an emotion, right? Generally, we're talking about what we feel. Uh, is there any description in 1 Corinthians 13 that describes a feeling? Not really, no. Okay? So, we see right there that we're using human language to describe something that the Bible itself is uh, describing a little bit differently. And so when we take that beyond that to say God is love, well, God's not this emotion of love that we feel. God is the, uh, the totality, the completeness, the perfection of what we see in a place like 1 Corinthians 13 at a bare minimum. Um, so since God is love, we understand that according to the doctrine of divine simplicity, which we looked at before, um, he is the perfection of that. But... Um, let me, let me uh, read this. This will be helpful to you. This is why we must let Scripture, not human experience, shape our understanding of God's affections. Those who study the matter biblically will quickly discover that God's Word, not merely classic theism, sets the divine affections on an infinity higher plane than human passions. We can learn much from the anthropopathic expressions But to a large degree, the divine affections remain hidden in impenetrable, incomprehensible mystery, far above our understanding. So in other words, as we talk about the emotions of God, uh, we do have to keep in mind, again, that we are talking about an incomprehensible God. So we can't think through his emotions in the same way that we do our own. So let's spend some time looking at some biblical evidence of divine impassibility. Um, and I do want to remind you, if, you're, um, if it's easier for you to just listen, feel free. Um, all of this, uh, hopefully, I, uh, hopefully we finish this up tonight and I'll be able to uh, print this out and distribute it next week, all of my notes from the past few weeks. So if you're taking notes and you're getting lost, then just listen and Soak it in and you'll get it next week. Um, Biblical evidence. We'll begin in Acts chapter 14. um, And I'm going to zoom through this. So if you want to flip there, that's fine. uh, But we're going to run right through it. In Acts chapter 14, the people in Lystra, 
who had seen the works, they'd heard the words of Paul and Barnabas, they were seeking to treat them as divine. Perhaps you remember uh, the story. In verse 11, uh, the people in Lystra said of Paul and Barnabas, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Now Luke writes in the book of Acts, Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? Here's the key statement for what we're concerned with. We also are men of like nature. The King James Version says passions. We also are men of like passions with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So Paul and Barnabas were emphatic in pointing out that they were not gods. They were passionate creatures just like all of those people who were before them trying to worship them. Uh, In other words, what is implied is we are not of a divine nature, therefore we have passions. We are submitted to uh, emotive changes. We are submitted to suffering. We are not like God. We are like you. We have passions of the same nature as you. Um, That's historically been a passage that is often turned to to defend this. Now, again, it's important to remember as we talk about all of these, um, we can't go to one verse of Scripture and build our entire doctrine off that. We're dealing with... um, with what the Westminster Confession calls um, dealing with doctrines by good and necessary consequence. In other words, um, when we get to doctrines, the way that we, um, we get to the conclusion of them is we look from Genesis through Revelation and see what the total uh, picture of, of being developed is um, about the Lord. Uh, or about any specific doctrine, and we come to an understanding of that by good and necessary consequence. In other words, there may not be um, a big long list of individual verses we can point to and say, see, it says it right there, but rather we're building from what we see in the total of the Scriptures. A very good example of that is our doctrine of the Trinity. Um, We can see instances of that, Uh, But a a true doctrine of the Trinity is built out from all of Scripture, um, and uh, and we do that by what the Westminster calls by good and necessary consequence. It's going to be the same thing here, although there are some verses that we can turn to. Um, Now, there are several Scriptures that defend God's immutability, which we talked about several weeks ago, the unchangeableness of God, that God does not change. They also serve to defend God as impassable. The two are really inseparable. If God is impassable, excuse me, then he is also immutable, and likewise the other way. So let me give you a few examples. James uh, chapter 1 and verse 17. James 1, 17. 
Um, this is a clear affirmation that there is no variation in God. So God's love, his joy, his wrath, and on and on and on, you can name whatever it is. They're not varied states that God could be and varied states that God periodically wills himself to be because God has no potentiality. We talked about this last week. God has no potential, right? When we talk about someone having potential, what are we saying about them? Yeah, they're not there yet. They can, they can do better. They can get there, right? Well, God has no potentiality. God is perfect and holy and righteous and glorious in every way to absolute perfection. Um, and so God has no potentiality. Therefore, he, ha- he doesn't have the potential to become uh, to be love. He doesn't have the potential to, um, to have wrath. He doesn't have the potential to experience joy. He has all of these things in their fullness. Um, and again, this alludes back to uh, the doctrine of simplicity. Um, but all of this points to this fact that God is eternal and he is without change. He is immutable. If someone has James one seventeen. read that out for us. Okay. There's no variation or shadow due to change. Great statement from James that really affirms this. Um, in other words, there's nothing outside of or inside of God that can or will inflict change upon God. Nothing will move him to change. Uh, another good example, 1 Samuel 15:29. It's this important affirmation that God is immutable. He is unchangeable. And as a result, he is impassable. He's not due, he's not um, able to suffer or to be acted upon in a way that would cause suffering or a change of emotive state. It says, uh, God is not subject to changes in will. Um, so someone read that for us. 1 Samuel fifteen twenty nine. Okay, he's not a man that he should have regret. God's not subject to changes in his will, such as are usually identified with something like repentance. Um, The text is clear, Um, but I don't want to get too far beyond that without dealing with texts that may be a little obvious uh, coming into this, uh, like Genesis 6, 6. It says, and the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Well, that seems to completely contradict what we're talking about, doesn't it? Uh, The references to God's regret and repentance, I think we have to be careful here because we need to read the Bible in a way that is consistent and non-contradictory. If there's a contradiction, it is our problem, not the Bible's. We need to figure that out. Um, We need to understand things like Genesis 6-6 as anthropopathisms, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, It must be observed that regardless of the emotive descriptions uh, upon God, it's not God himself who changes. It's his works toward creation, perhaps, that look differently than they did previously. But it's not God himself who changes. It's the works that he's doing that are 
um, appearing to be different uh, in time-space reality. John Calvin explains um, the repentance of God in a very helpful manner. It's a fairly lengthy quote, so hang with me, but I think it's, it's helpful to us. He says, What then is meant by the term repentance? The very same that is meant by the other forms of expression by which God is described to us humanly. Because our weakness cannot reach his height, any description which we receive of him must be lowered to our capacity in order to be intelligible. And the mode of lowering is to represent him not as he really is, but as we conceive of him. Though he is incapable of every feeling or perturbation, which is anxiety, he declares that he is angry with the wicked. Wherefore, as when we hear that God is angry, we ought Rather to consider the mode of speech accommodated to our sense. God appearing to us like one inflamed and irritated, whether he exercises judgment. So we ought not to imagine anything more under the term repentance than a change of action. Men being wont to testify their dissatisfaction by such a change. Hence, because every change whatever among men is intended as a correction of what displeases, and the correction proceeds from repentance, the same term applied to God simply means that his procedure is changed. In the meantime, there is no inversion of his counsel or will, no change of his affection. What from eternity he had foreseen, approved, decreed, He prosecutes with unvarying uniformity how sudden soever to the eye of man the variation may seem to be. It's very, very helpful um, to me. Um, So we have to think of this in terms of, uh, for example, what Malachi 3.6 says, the Lord proclaims, for I am the Lord and do not change. Um, so again, the obvious implication there is God's immutability, his unchangeable nature. Um, but such a definitive statement, and here's my argument for impassibility, such a definitive statement of his unchangeableness requires impassibility. How so? Consider the fact that man is ever-changing but never apart from being acted upon internally, in our own hearts, or externally. We are constantly changing. We are constantly being acted upon externally and internally. For example, man's repentance is predicated upon a changed mind, right? And his mind is changed by being convinced that repentance is necessary. Right? I'm only going to repent if I've been convinced that repentance is necessary. Uh, in other words, um, I have sinned, I must reconcile with the one with whom I have offended. Well, repentance doesn't change my physical state at all. Um, my spiritual state, though, is altered, isn't it? So how does man, though, come to the realization that repentance is necessary? We just squeeze and it happens? (laughs) No, we have to be convinced by something external to us, right? Well, God has 
ordained, varied means of grace. Perhaps it's um, through someone uh, coming to us as Nathan approached um, David to uh, convict him uh, through a parable of his sin. Perhaps it is through a uh, reading of the Word of God. Perhaps it's the preached Word of God. Whatever it is, something external to us is showing us our sin. God has defined what sin is and what must be repented of. Therefore, in some way, we need to have communicated to us, uh, this is sinful, this must be repented of. Natural man does not come to the conclusion of his sinful nature on his own. Uh, It's always constantly something acting upon man to which we come to those conclusions. So God, on the other hand, who is the creator of man, the definer of truth, he cannot sin, he cannot do that which requires repentance, right? Everything God does is good, and right because God does it. Everything God does is good and right because God does it. He's the definer of what is good and right. And if he does it as the holy, um, righteous, glorious God of all the universe, he gets to determine what that is. And if he does it, it is good and right. So the fact that God does not change removes the possibility that anything can act upon God in a way that would bring about causality, in a way that would bring about any kind of um, change, that would cause reason for God to, um, to, um, uh, to change in his nature. Additionally, to suggest that God is passable, which is the opposite of impassibility, to suggest that God is passable or God can suffer or God does experience some kind of mood swing is to suggest that God is mutable. He is changeable. So immutability goes out the window if impassibility goes out the window. Um, Emotivity, to have... Emotion, in the sense that we as human beings have emotion, requires change. You have to move from one emotion to the next. We can't experience um, at the same exact time emotion uh, in, in the sense that we, we can't have the whole range of emotion that we ex- experience as humans and um, where we may look at it on a horizontal plane, think of it, that all of those are stacked on top of each other happening all at once. We can't do that. Um, But that is the very thing that we're saying about God and his simplicity. Any questions so far before I uh, press on with this? I hope I'm being clear. I'm trying. Yeah, all your false gods are because they're created in your own image. Yeah, that's excellent. That's that's exactly right. Yeah, every every human, um, every man-made god... Uh, is full of emotional change and uh, and whatever you see it you know they 're very uh, tempestuous, I guess, as you see that all the time and that's uh, many people have that notion of uh, of God we worship because they don 't understand him right but you hear it all the time that God is an old angry codger that sits in heaven waiting to smite us uh, sure that there's some there 's some change there that god uh, when the testament uh, Transition that uh, God changed or, or something. Uh, 
um, because they see uh, they see wrath and the penalty of uh, sin being doled out in uh, just ways in the Old Testament, uh, but they just see uh, Jesus uh, in the New. Um, so, absolutely. Um, and a lot of that is where I think um, the confusion and the, um, the misrepresentation of this doctrine comes in. Any other thoughts or questions before we press on? All right, so what do we do with the emotive language of the Bible as it relates to God? It is undeniable that there are many statements in the Bible that attribute emotional changes or state of changes of mind to God. We can't deny that. It's very clear. Um, So the question being, don't those statements deny the impassibility of God? Well, again, a high view of Scripture requires that we believe any statement about God to be true. We can't deny that. Um, But proper hermeneutics... Reading the Bible properly helps us to understand that while something may be true, that does not necessarily mean that it needs to be interpreted literally. An example um, will be very helpful here. Um, How can we reconcile the doctrine of divine impassibility with passages like Exodus 32, 10 and 11? Let's read that passage. Exodus chapter 32 Verses 10 and 11. <coughs> Thank you. So what, what, does it, what appears to be happening here? Okay, so Moses is appealing to God. Um, are, is, are, you really, are you sure you want to do this? Maybe Let's talk about this, right? Uh, what, what appears to be happening with God? Yeah, he's uh, he's ready to roll. He's um, and you almost get this this sense. Uh, you want to think that maybe God wanted to go off by himself and wallow in his anger for a while uh, to consider how it is that he might uh, consume Israel and think about it. Essentially, void the Abrahamic covenant altogether. Right? Uh, that's sort of you read this. Let me alone that my wrath may be burn hot against them. Uh, just leave me alone. I'm going to deal with this uh, for a while. I'm going to let it build and then let them have it. Um, likewise, should we believe that Moses actually convinces God to change his mind by persuasive argumentation? Because God, in the end, did not annihilate the nation of Israel. Is that what happened? Was it God convincing, or excuse me, Moses convincing God not to do that? Is God throwing a cosmic temper tantrum only to be consoled by his buddy Moses? Remember, God, you may not always like your people, but you do love them. (laughs) Do you really want to do this? Did you have a question, Moses? Yeah, good. And you're, you're really getting to the heart of this is we're dealing with actions. We're dealing with things that are happening um, that God is doing externally. Um, and what's missed in that is we're looking at it in terms of uh, our, our first sense is to see perhaps there's some kind of emotional um, turmoil going on with God here. There's nothing of that nature. We're, we're getting a glimpse of one aspect of God's simplistic nature, 
Um, but that doesn't change all of the other elements of his nature. There's simply an action. There's a, a something going on that God is doing um, in changing a people. Um, now, reading this passage specifically in a way that would suggest that God is, you know, kind of throwing a temper tantrum, about to fly off the handle, or that Moses was able to convince God to do otherwise, it clearly violates many clear truths of Scripture, right? Ones that we've already read, that God does not change, that uh, He's not, um, he's, he's not um, swayed by human opinion. Um, Paul, uh, Paul addresses this in Romans 11. Who's been his counselor? Uh, no, you know, obviously a rhetorical question. No man can give counsel to God. Um, so a strict, literal interpretation of what I believe to be an anthropopathism in this passage is an impossibility. It would impugn either the character of God or the trustworthiness of his word, right? Because he said he would fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. Well, if he's going to wipe them all off the face of the planet, he can't do that. And therefore, he's not holding true to his word, but he's a God who withholds all of his promises. He fulfills all of his promises. Therefore, um, we would be saying a lot of things about God that aren't true, right? But the flip side to this, we can assume that God is somehow uninterested or distant. That's the God of deism, the watchmaker, God who... Got it all started, wound it up, set it down, and he sits back and watches it unfold. That's not God. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not consistent with Scripture either. Um, No doubt the relationship between impassibility and the anthropopathisms of the Bible create this tension. We have to recognize there is some divine mystery here, as we have all along the way with anything we deal with in the doctrine of God. So what we can do, though, is we can mine the meaning out of these anthropopathisms. It's true that these uh, figures of speech um, are here for us to to deal with, but we have to acknowledge um, that we can't just cast them aside and say, well, that's mystery and I can't understand anything of it. There is something that we can understand of it, Um, because God's given it to us in human terms. Um, We have to acknowledge that those expressions mean something. Uh, Specifically, uh, they're reassurances to us that God is not uninvolved. He's not indifferent to his creation. He does care about you and I and what we do. Um, However, because we recognize them as metaphorical, we must also convince there is something that they do not mean. They do not mean that God is literally subject to mood swings. He's not subject to melancholy, depression. He doesn't have spasms of passion or temper tantrums. And in order to make that clear, Scripture often stresses the constancy of God's love, the, um, the infinity of His mercies, um, the certainty that we have in his promises, the unchangeableness of his mind, uh, the lack of fluctuation in his perfections. We see these things attested to in Scripture over and over and over again. 
Again, James 1.17, With God there is no variableness, neither shadow nor turning. So, absolute immutability is one of God's transcendent characteristics. Remember last week we talked about transcendence and imminence. This is one of the things of God that are transcendent. We must resist the tendency to snatch it out of transcendence and bring it down to a place where we define God in the same way that we define man. So without a doubt... um, some of the most precious truths that can be settled upon when considering the emotive language about God is that He is compassionate and that He's forgiving. We can't deny that. It's true. That's a, that's a great comfort to us, and we rest in that. He's not cold. He's not distant. He's not indifferent to the suffering or the sin of mankind. Yet the human conception of what compassion looks like, the human conception of what forgiveness looks like, can only be conceived of in relation to various influences eliciting change. (coughs) But with God, such uh, reactions or changes actually express a deeper truth, that of God's unchanging God's unaltering love and justice as the transcendent other. And this is really where we get to the heart of why impassibility is very important. And I'm going to deal at the end with what we lose if we lose the doctrine itself. Um, But I argue that impassibility really um, heightens and gives us a larger understanding, a greater understanding of the love and the compassion of God. That's the very thing that those who deny it are trying to protect, but in doing so, they're, they're shrinking it. They're making it less than it really is. We'll deal with that in a little bit. Jonathan Edwards gives us a distinction between affections and passions that I think is helpful. Let me read this to you, um, and we'll spend a little time explaining it. Edwards writes, Affections and passions are frequently spoken of at the same time. And yet, in the more common use of speech, there is, in some respect, a difference. Affection is a word that, in its ordinary signification, seems to be something more extensive than passion, being used for all vigorous, lively acting of the will or inclination. But passion for those that are more sudden, and whose effects on the animal spirits are more violent, and the mind more overpowered, and less in its own command. In other words, uh, Edwards argues that passions are involuntary and non-rational. Again, the mood swings that we talked about. Uh, Whereas affections are otherwise. They are something that is is methodical, something that is thought out, something that um, is, uh, is done in... Um, complete willingness, whereas a passion is, um, you know, people say, oh, I, I just, I just flew off the handle. I just lost control. Well, that's what we define as a passion versus an affection, where um, I am moving into something. I'm moving toward something. Uh, so perhaps you think of uh, the love you show towards someone else. Uh, We're moving in that direction toward them, and we're doing so methodically. Um, So, (coughs) given this distinction between 
emotion uh, of affection and passion, it seems appropriate to say that whereas God is without passions, he's surely not without affections. Maybe that helps. In fact, his joy, his wrath, his sorrow, his pity, his compassion, his delight, his love, his hatred, all of these and other divine affections, they epitomize the very perfection of all the heartfelt affections that we experience, although imperfectly. So think of every emotion or every uh, experience of emotion that we have and take that to its perfection and how it's displayed um, in holiness, in godliness. Uh, So think of something, for example, in Ephesians 4 when the Apostle Paul says, be angry and do not sin. How many of us have mastered um, being righteously angry? Uh, None of us, right? 99.99 repeating percent uh, times our anger is of an unrighteous nature. And yet we see in the Bible it says, be angry. Well, we read of the anger of God. It's holy, it's just, it's righteous. So you can take something like anger. We've experienced it, but we, um, when we attribute it to God, we see anger in its perfection, in its fullness, and to the greatest extent. Um, God's affections are absent from the ebb and flow of change that we experience in our human emotions. But they are real and they are powerful nonetheless. Uh, To suggest that God is unfeeling is to completely mangle the intent of the doctrine that we are looking at. So we shouldn't be led to think that God is unfeeling, but his feelings are never passive. They're not subject to change. They're not subject to, um, uh, to passions in the way that Edwards was describing them. Uncontrollable or um, just um, immediate without any kind of uh, plan behind them. Um, good, uh, helpful statement from J.I. Packer. Impassibility is not impassivity or unconcern or impersonal detachment in the face of the creation. Not insensitivity and indifference to the distresses of the fallen world. Not inability or unwillingness to empathize with human pain and grief. But simply that God's experiences do not come upon him as ours come upon us. For his are foreknown, willed, and chosen by himself. And are not involuntary surprises forced on him from outside apart from his own decision in the way that ours regularly are. I think that's a very helpful way of thinking about it. So, what is lost if we deny the doctrine of impassibility? The natural tendency of man is to desire a God who is um, who's essentially like us, right? It's evident in the various writings um, that... Um, try to uh, say that God is passable. Uh, Specifically, critics of uh, impassibility focus on the nature of divine love and the reality of human suffering in relationship to that. Uh, If God does not suffer, (coughs) according to those who suggest that God is passable, he is therefore, in their conclusion, not loving. 
And they say that. <laughs> Therefore, if God is loving, God will suffer alongside his people. So let me give you a few quotes so you know I'm not just um, uh, reading into them. Uh, the first one, J. Moltman. The suffering of a single innocent child is an irrefutable rebuttal of the notion of the almighty and kindly God in heaven. For a God who lets the innocent suffer and who permits senseless death is not worthy to be ca- called God at all. Uh, uh, Steen, I don't know, first, that's a German theologian. God's response to suffering is to be found in his sympathizing and compassionate love. He heals our suffering by sharing in it. And lastly, sadly for me, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, only the suffering God can help. So, to be clear, those who hold to the passibility of God are suggesting that it is not only that God acts within history to change history, nor that he acts within the lives of human beings in order to affect them, but equally the course of history and the variations of human life affect and change him. So he's not just changing history and what we're doing, he's also being changed himself according to this understanding. Yes? I'm about a minute away from that. Yeah, that's really important to all of this. So, is a God who suffers, a God of passions, consistent with biblical truth? Well, historically, theologians have understood that the doctrine of divine impassibility is not to deny that God is love or to deny that God cares about his creation. We've dealt with that. Rather, the doctrine is as it's classically defined and rightly understood, establishes that the triune God is unchangeable, is perfect, and therefore his love is unchangeable and perfect. To say that God um, experiences emotion in the same way that we do, or that he has passions in the way that we do, is to say that at times his love is imperfect because it gives way to anger or wrath or vengeance or whatever we would call that. Um, God's love toward his people is absolute. It is unchanging. It does not ebb and flow. If God is passable, his love wavers. So God may not love me the same today as he does tomorrow or he did when he saved me or he will in the future. That's not very comforting. <laughs> that's, not, that's not the God I see in the Bible. Um, there is yet, uh, with them, there's a love with which God will love me that he's not loving me now because he's not reached, he's not yet reached that state of emotion toward me. Uh, God's waiting to actuate the love that still is waiting in the future. So this kind of conclusion is a reduction of the actual true love with which God loves us here and now. So what do we lose with impassibility? We lose a real understanding and a right understanding. And our source of hope, our source of, um, of connection to a God who does love us and care about us, is really a way to sever the beauty of the relationship that we have toward God. By removing the height of God's transcendence in this, Making him passable like us is to lose the efficacy and to lose the beauty of what his imminence is all about. Him dwelling 
with us. So, of course, the question comes up, and this is where we'll end. What about the suffering of Jesus? How does Jesus fit into all of this? Because very clearly, Jesus suffered and died as fully God, fully man. So, the subject of the nature of Christ we're going to really dive into when we get to chapter 8 of the Confession um, but it's appropriate at least to consider the differences between Jesus' divine and human nature as we deal with this issue of suffering. Historically, the church has understood the relationship between the divine and human nature of Jesus to be called uh, the hypostatic union. That is that Jesus is a union of two natures, 100% God and 100% man. Uh, The two natures are now forever united in the person of Christ. They were not united in eternity past. They came to be united at the birth of Christ when he took on human flesh. But we cannot confuse them. Uh, They should always be kept distinct. I think I've talked about this before. If you... Uh, if you go to um, the fast lane frozen yogurt here and you pull the middle, uh, the middle handle on any of the uh, frozen yogurt machines, what happens? <laughs> you get a mixture of the one that's on either side, right? So you have vanilla here and chocolate here. You pull the middle one, you get vanilla and chocolate swirl, right? Um, I think most often when we think about the hypostatic union, our minds go to think like that, that it's kind of half and half, God's human, uh, Jesus is human, but Jesus is divine. There's a mixture and intermingling of the two. We cannot think that way. That's not how the Bible presents Jesus. Jesus is fully God, fully man, and the two natures, while they interact, are are separate uh, in terms of how Jesus functions as God and as man. So... It's technically not proper to speak of God as having a body. We've already looked at that. It is right to say that the person of the Son of God has a body and that he is God, but in his divine nature or in his divine essence, he does not have a body. Okay, so here's why that mingling doesn't work. So in Jesus' human nature, he had a body and he experienced life just like you you and I. In his divine nature, he did not have a body, and he did not—he uh, was not subject to external uh, influence in the same way that we are. To understand Jesus any other way is to extract him from his true nature, from the Godhead, who is one in essence, in three persons, equal in power and glory with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Um. So it's right to speak of Jesus as having suffered and died in his human nature. But the divine nature of Jesus remained impassable. That is really important. So when we talk about Jesus, we have to be very clear that when we're talking about him suffering and dying, we're talking about his human nature, not his divine nature. The human nature of Christ relates to the divine nature of Christ in every way. This hopefully blows your mind a little like it does mine. The human nature of Jesus relates to the divine nature of Jesus in the same way that every creature relates to their creator. So these two natures of Jesus relating in that way, 
Um, if anyone says, this is, uh, um, this is important in relation to Philippians chapter 2. If anyone says that in the passion of the cross, it is God himself who felt the pain and not the flesh and the soul which Christ, the Son of God, had taken to himself, the form of a servant which he had accepted as Scripture says, he is mistaken. In other words, as Christ died on the cross, we're dealing with the human nature of Christ. God did not die. God always has been and God always will be. It is Christ the Lord in his human nature who died. So the passion of Christ, as it's come to be described, the suffering of Christ on the cross, is ascribed to him by virtue of his human nature and not by virtue of his divinity, which means transcendent of all suffering. So we'll end right there, um, but I want to answer any questions or hear your thoughts. Go ahead. Yeah, certainly, because... Um, again, to to ex- uh, to say otherwise, to say that that was the divine nature of Christ at play then, is to extract him from the Trinity. See what I'm saying? Um, we can't do that because he is he is one with the Father and the Holy Spirit. That uh, he is one God. So uh, we can't extract his divinity from the Trinity and say, well, in this instance. You know, his divine nature was doing something different. Um, but we see that to be his human nature, that he as the human, um, the epitome of human perfection, fully fulfilling the law of God in every way as the ultimate sacrifice that could not be provided by uh, bulls and goats and rams, um, has been provided in the humanity of Jesus, um, who, um, who is God who took on flesh. That's that's what, again, that's one of the very difficult mysteries of the hypostatic union dealing with that. Does that help? And again, I, I think all of this has to be, we have to always take that back to the humanity of Jesus. That Notice the words of Jesus in that, my God, my God. He's not saying myself. <laughs> he's, he's referring to creator as... Uh, as human flesh. He's referring to creator as uh, as human. My God, why have you forsaken me? Because uh, he has become uh, the sacrifice. He in his humanity has become the one that is, um, out of all of his perfection, the only one that is um, acceptable to be forsaken um, for uh, for the propitiation of sins. And so um, when Jesus says that, we understand that to be uh, from his humanity, from his human nature as 100% man, not um, God. Uh, and, and there's a lot of people who would look at even... And it's caused me to think a little bit about some of the music that we sing, some of the lyrics and some of the songs. Are we talking about God turning his back on himself in his divinity of the Son? Or are we talking about God turning his face away from the human nature of Christ who became our sacrifice? That's what we're talking about. So it's important to make the distinction, but a lot of times we just talk about Jesus, um, and we kind of know somewhere back here he's human, he's divine, but we sort of mash them together and just think of it all in the same category. So when we read these things in the Scriptures, we don't make the distinction yeah, sure. 
Well, it, it's right in the same category as trying to give a, a good, thorough description of what the Trinity is. You know, I mean, there's a lot of mystery there that we can't... There is nothing in uh, the created world that we can point to and say, it's just like this. There's nothing. Um, so how does that all work out? I don't, I don't know. Um, I, don't, I have no idea. <laughs> but I do know that the scriptures point uh, to this, and it seems very clear. And especially as we walk through the Gospel of Luke, we continue to see that over and over again, these two natures of Christ being presented. Yeah, no, you're right. But think of Jesus in his humanity was in perfect communion and union with God. Uh, far greater than before the fall. Yeah. So, so at the moment of being separated from the Father, as in His human nature, um, He's experiencing something that He has not yet in His humanity experienced. Why? Because He lived a perfect, sinless life. So He had perfect union with God. Now all of a sudden that union is severed by virtue of our sins being placed upon him. Um, so that's, that's where the suffering of the spiritual sense happens. It's because he's now experiencing a separation from God that was never his before. Absolutely. Yeah, there's no, there's no suggestion whatsoever that none of this happened or that it's just kind of this figment or it's, we're using language that is... Um, you know, different from what we're assuming. It happened, but it happened in the humanity of Christ. Go ahead, Russ. Yeah, again, what I what I had mentioned in terms of Jesus' humanity relates to Jesus' divinity in the same way that any creature relates to um, to its creator. And the way we relate to God is the way that the humanity of Jesus related to the divinity of Jesus. Now, of course, that's all within the same... Person, so uh, it's a little bit of a hard thing to conceptualize, but um, that may be helpful. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, it couldn't have been, because again, then we are uh, we're essentially taking a part of the trinitarian nature of the one true God and saying uh, there was a time in history where uh, he wasn't a part of the triune God at the Godhead. It's, it's not possible. Good. I'm glad you're all thinking. Well, next week we're going to press on um, beyond this. Again, I, like I said, I really think, I hope I'm not lying to you, but I really think that w- what we've dealt with over the last several weeks is probably going to be the most difficult of what we will deal with walking through the confession. So... Um, <coughs> There are going to be some other things that are going to cause us to think hard and work hard, but um, you know, a lot of this, we're dealing with the metaphysical nature of God, which is a very uh, lofty consideration. So um, as we press on, we'll, um, we'll still have some difficult things, but probably not in the same way. So uh, thanks for sticking with me, and hopefully this was helpful. I will try to have everything printed out that we've worked on thus far, because it's getting long. I don't want to this one paragraph, I think I have about 30 pages of notes, so I'll get those together for you and get them out to you, and um, then we'll continue on. So let's, uh, let's pray, and we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you again so much for this time. We're grateful um, for you allowing us to gather, for you allowing us to 
to understand, to study, and to have um, uh, to have a greater knowledge of you and what you have accomplished in uh, throughout redemptive history and who you are in your nature and your essence. Lord, I pray that you uh, you continually blow our minds to um, to have a greater awe and reverence and um, that you create within us great wonder um, as we consider uh, that you are God and there is none other. Uh, Lord, so help us to continue to grow, to continue in our understanding, and to continue to be amazed um, that uh, that you are who you are and that you've called us to be your children. Um, not based upon our own good works, not based upon anything that we could accomplish, but in the perfect sinless life of Jesus Christ who's died on our behalf. Uh, Lord, thank you. Thank you that we can be called your children and call you Abba Father. We love you and praise you and ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.